Waves in the Finiverse. You don't have to trust some centralized third party to behave. There's, you know, deterministic code that, that controls funds that, that can be audited, that everyone can verify. Everyone can see the current state and, and verify, you know, the, the, the proof of reserves and that, um, you know, user funds are safe, essentially, and, and how things um, will be executed. There really could be another blow and we could be, um, you know, this bear market could be extended significantly longer. Unfortunately, that mechanism has a sort of fatal flaw, which is, no, you know, which was, was well known and, and discussed, which people refer to colloquially as the death spiral. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse. We're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. Today's guest describes himself as an internet biophysicist, sustainability existentialist, and plain text evangelist. When he's not on Twitter, he spends most of his time in the cosmos, a complex layer zero network that in the past year has exploded with activity. Our guest is co-founder of Cosmos, Vice President of Interchain Foundation and CEO of Informal Systems. With three jobs on the go, we're lucky enough to have him joining us in the Finiverse. Please welcome Ethan Buckman. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. Ethan, great to have you on the show. I want to kick off with some big overarching topics. Uh, one of the biggest questions is you say that international finance system is structurally unsound and unstable. Why? Wow. Let's uh, kick off with a bang. Well, 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 thanks for having me on. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I think ultimately, there's a few ways to understand what's maybe structurally wrong with it. One way to think about it is that we have institutionalized what was uh, historically a form of war finance, right? Where, where the sovereign would find itself in an uh, emergency condition, um, and and would have to raise raise funds for that in in the form of you know sovereign debt, and that has become that debt that was initially used to fund war has become the sort of institutional backbone of the financial system, and that has you know certain impl implications for for how we orient, for how we spend funds, for how we think about sustainability in the economy. Perhaps more fundamentally, or or as a result of that, the way we structure and organize debt in society kind of as a whole is in such a way that we don't really ever expect it to be paid back. It's kind of continuously rolled over. And that that perennial sort of rolling over of, of the financial state uh, implies a kind of endogenous instability that inevitably leads to these, you know, these sorts of crises we keep seeing. And 2008 was sort of the worst version of that. But we haven't really addressed, uh, you know, the structural imbalances in the financial system that are, that are kind of built into the way, way we do things. So um, you know, there's, there's a lot more we could unpack there. It has a lot to do with sort of American hegemony and, and the, the sort of structural trade deficit that, that they have. And, you know, the, the structure of the euro dollar system, which is this offshore shadow banking system, you know, that no one really understands or, or can see and all the kind of instability uh, lurking there. And the system kind of worked for a while after the war and until um, until about 2008. And then it, it collapsed uh, pretty fundamentally and, and, and hasn't really recovered since. Um, and, and things are only kind of getting worse. So 
um, you know, crypto obviously emerged as a response to this. Ethan, 2008 was a pretty monumental year for the development of blockchain. It was when the Satoshi Nakamoto protocols were published, um, and right. that opened the gateway to an alternative form of financial systems. Do you want to talk about what that has managed to overcome and areas where it still may be wanting? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, uh, Satoshi's protocol, Bitcoin, was certainly a response to the crisis. And, and when it launched, you know, there was a message stamped in the Genesis block uh, from from the Times, uh, the uh, the you know Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So it's very much a you know political response. You know, one idea is that Bitcoin is sort of fundamentally an open source money in a world where we, we hadn't been able to have open source money, but it, it emerged with a kind of simplicity baked in. You know, that means it's really just a starting point, right? And so it allowed uh, you know an online open source community of people to come together to issue their own money issued for work they deem valuable, the proof, the proof of work mining, and sort of set the foundation for a new way of thinking about how we could, you know, create, issue, distribute money as a society. And of course, the, you know, the revolution that, that's taken off since the crypto revolution has, has been experimenting in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, it's also getting stuck in a world of sort of um, finance and speculation and, and the, you know, let's say the maturity of its uh, of its monetary theory is still pretty limited, and so so it kind of has a long way to go to really, you know, connecting better with the real world and, and and sort of completing the story of what we need for sustainable money. Now, before we dive into the next question, I want to establish for our listeners your bona fides. Could you perhaps give us either a, a the world's shortest elevator pitch or a 128 character introduction? To yourself and your firm? Yeah, sure. So my background is in, in biophysics. I studied the origin of life and statistical mechanics and, and got into computer science. I did a master's degree on a consensus algorithm called Tendermint. And then, uh, you know, Tendermint is, um, is a general purpose blockchain engine, blockchain solution that people can build their own blockchains with. And then on top of Tendermint, um, I co-founded a project called Cosmos that proposes allowing uh, anyone to build their own blockchain, any community to build application specific blockchains that, that, that they can launch with their own proof of stake validator set. Um, and that and, and that can connect to each other in an interoperable manner using a general purpose protocol we we, uh, we developed called IBC. So Cosmos is quite popular today. It's, it's pretty much the most popular way to build uh, a blockchain. There's, you know, 50 plus public chains uh, connecting that are, that are built using the Cosmos technology. And nowadays I run a company called Informal Systems, which is uh, structured as a workers cooperative. That's a, a leading um, development team within Cosmos, but we also do security audits. We run a proof of stake validator and we're building a, a new kind of financial solution uh, that we call collaborative finance. So we, we could get into into all of that. Okay, well, I will come back to collaborative finance. But um, going back to the earlier question, uh, you mentioned about the uh, international finance system being built off the back of war. Uh, made me better understand why the tax collectors were roaming through Sherwood Forest uh, back in the days of Robin Hood and Maid Marian, but uh, carrying all the way through to present, that had been why states needed to raise funds. Now, since 2008, with the Satoshi Protocols, we've moved into a world of virtual assets and crypto exchanges. But in the last fortnight, Ethan, we've seen the collapse of FTX. How will we regain people's trust in exchanges and how fundamentally does this alter the kind of the, the future prospects for uh, cryptocurrencies? Yeah. So, you know, the FTX failure was certainly um, a tragedy for all the all the folks who lost money. Um, it seems there were a lot of, you know, a lot of potential signs as well. But ultimately, this was the failure of a centralized institution who failed to manage their risk, uh, who, who failed to be uh, sufficiently transparent and accountable with user funds um, and collapse. And we've seen, you know, we've seen other instances of this 
this year and certainly in the past, we'll, we'll likely see more instances of, of this again. Uh, but really, you know, th- this most fundamentally underlines the importance and validity of what's being proposed with decentralized finance, with these, you know, transparent ledgers, transparent financial systems on which, you know, you don't have to trust some centralized third party to behave. There's, you know, deterministic code that that controls funds that that can be audited, that everyone can verify, everyone can see the current state and, and verify, you know, the, the, the proof of reserves and that, um, you know, user funds are safe, essentially, and, and how things will be executed. So so really, this is just another failure of an unaccountable centralized entity uh, that had very poor governance. You know, there was, as far as I know, there was no actual board, even though there were hundreds of millions of dollars invested, right? So just chronic unaccountability um, in centralized institutions. So it's, it's quite unfortunate. I think, uh, you know, they were one of the biggest exchanges, very popular in, in a lot of mainstream media. And, and so it'll certainly shake some trust for a bit. But I think, you know, we just continue to rebuild and stay values aligned with what this movement is all about and, and continue to push back against centralized institutions and, and to promote better you know, transparency, verifiability, and so on, which is really what this is all for. Now, Ethan, um, clearly FTX was the equivalent of dropping a large rock in the center of the pond, um, and we see the waves rippling out. Uh, We've seen some early casualties, but I'd like you to put on your kind of forward-looking fortune teller's hat and kind of tell us where some of these, uh, where do you see the ripples extending to, and what are some of the areas that are under potential vulnerability? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, it's it's certainly a big shock, a big shock to the ecosystem. In some sense, this seems like it's still downstream of um, of the Terra collapse earlier in the year, which is you know it was perhaps triggered by um, macroeconomic conditions. So you know, all of this might just be downstream of rate hikes, but it's really, really hard to say, uh, you know, the central bank hikes the rakes and, and, and suddenly the fraud uh, becomes a lot more apparent in the system. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't have a, a crystal ball. I think there, there will still be some, some fallout to be had. I think we'll still see uh, some, um, you know, some players that, uh, that, that suffer significantly from this, you know, there's been rumors about, about certain other, um, uh, centralized service providers in the space, and so we'll have to we'll have to see how all that goes. Um, you know, it really there there really could be another blow, and we could be um, you know this bear market could be extended significantly longer. But um, you know, we don't really know. It could also be uh, you know it's important to to shake things out and to shake out you know bad decisions and and unsustainable debt and so on. So um, you know, hopefully the the space will just continue to to grow back stronger than ever, which is sort of what happens each time each time there's a crisis and. You like to think people learn somewhat from from previous ones. Maybe they don't all, always, or they kind of disappoint you. But you know, we just we just keep building and um, keep building the next wave of these things, and and keep focusing on you know pushing to really connect to real world use cases and make it not just about you know speculation and uh, and number go up and so on, but actually focus on you know real world value. So hopefully that's what the next cycle will have in store. Great. Well, let's um, uh, leave the past behind us and move forward into uh, your thinking and your business and Cosmos. Uh, your goal is to build tools that encourage humans to self-organize into functional systems. How do these tools work and why would we want to do this? That's right. Yeah. Um, great question. So I like to think of this in terms of um, you know the evolution of, of computing. And, and how computing systems kind of evolved. I think there's an important analogy to be made. You know, in, in the past, when computing systems were evolved, first we kind of had mainframes, and mainframes were these sort of big, bulky computers in you know the basement of IBM or whatever. And there was this notion that well, you know, not everyone needed a computer. Everyone could just use you know one or, or a few large mainframes, and, and that would be fine. And people who said there would be personal computers were ridiculed, right? Uh, but but of course, what happened? The personal computer emerged and gave every individual the ability to be 
sovereign over their own computing machinery to own it, to turn it on when they want, to install the software they want, to operate it how they want, but to also be interoperable with all the other personal computers out there, right? And that interoperability emerged through what we call the internet, through standard communications protocols over the internet, like TCP, the standard communications protocol, right? And, and, and this world sort of emerged of, you know, interoperable personal computers. And we see in the blockchain space, something uh, kind of similar happening, except um, you know, instead of physical computers, the computers we're talking about are what we might call consensus computers or blockchains, right? Each blockchain is really uh, logically, it's a single computing device, even though it's made up of many physical computers. All of those physical computers are kept in sync. They all compute the same thing, the same function, the same output. So logically, it's like a single computer run by run by a large community. And we have a sort of mainframe version of that in the Bitcoins and Ethereums of the world, the so-called world computing vision. But Cosmos proposes uh, ultimately what would be the personal computing equivalent in the blockchain world or what we would call the community computer. So in Cosmos, the each blockchain, is a, it, we call it a community computer because really it's giving to some community, however they define themselves, the ability to build and, and run and maintain and evolve their own uh, their own computer in their own community computer in the form of a, of a Cosmos blockchain, right? And so we've seen a number, you know, 50 plus communities emerge and, and, and there's sort of uh, many more coming that are building, they're using the Cosmos machinery to build their own blockchain that represents their own values with their own validator set, their own uh, token, their own governance, so their own real political economic system. So these are ultimately tools for political economic uh, expression, right? To, to organize yourself. You don't have to pay rent to any other token or use anyone's token or infrastructure. You sort of have complete sovereignty over your blockchain, and yet you can still be interoperable with uh, all the other blockchains out there. So that's that's the sort of core idea, um, this community computer vision and, and, and philosophy that gives every community the ability to sort of run their own computing. Waves in the Finiverse. From innovators to investors, get inside the minds of the industry's top leaders in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3, and beyond. Get ready to ride the next wave. Bitcoin will eventually become a digital Can I be arrested for just writing some Why are there so many DeFi protocols that are getting hacked? This is Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ethan, we've spoken in the past with leaders of some of the other competitive blockchains. Uh, we've heard of layer one blockchains such as Bitcoin or Ethereum, layer two networks and blockchain or next generation. I know that Cosmos is a key layer of zero blockchain. So what exactly is layer zero? Yeah, so I don't love the the whole layering distinction. I, I suppose it can be useful. <laughs> you know, the idea that a layer one blockchain is, is an independent blockchain with its own consensus mechanism, right? So there's a bunch of participants that are running a consensus algorithm so that they agree, all of them on every state on the on the history of transactions and so on. And you have a bunch of these things, like you said, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on. In Cosmos, we really want to, and then, and then, so for instance, on Ethereum, you have the Ethereum blockchain, and then people will build smart contracts on top of Ethereum. They'll deploy onto Ethereum, so they're all kind of sharing one Ethereum blockchain. But you have many different applications. The idea with Cosmos is, is to provide a different model for building applications, where each application is its own blockchain. Right. And so each application is sort of like its own layer one blockchain with its own validator set, its own token, its own security and so on. But the key is 
that there's a general purpose interoperability protocol for those different layer one blockchains to communicate with each other. And we call that thing IBC, the Interblockchain Communication Protocol. And, and some people will like to think of that as a sort of layer zero because it defines a, you know, a, a generic uh, interface through which different layer one blockchains can actually communicate with one another. Um, but but it's really just a communication standard, just a protocol standard. It's not you know it's not um, it's not like a platform that's owned by a company or that or its own blockchain that has its own token. It's really just a, a general purpose uh, standard for different blockchains to communicate. Just like different computers communicate over the internet using a protocol called TCP, different blockchains can communicate over the interchain using a protocol called IBC. So it's a kind of perfectly analogous. Like Fantastic. That. So it's a it's a little kind of series of piping underneath the, the layer ones that allow everyone to speak the same language and connect with the same code. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Tell me, what are the what are most of the cosmonauts doing in Cosmos? Uh, how are your users uh, using Cosmos? Yeah, well, there, there's a lot of different uh, a lot of different kinds of applications being built. You know, there's uh, there's decentralized exchanges, there's lending protocols, there's stablecoin systems, uh, there's new virtual machines that are being experimented with or uh, or even old ones. So, uh, you know, the Ethereum virtual machine exists on its own Cosmos blockchain called Evmos. And so there's a lot of experimentation with different kinds of, of applications. But then there's also some that are, you know, more focused on on social impact. You know, there's the Regen Network project that's building, uh, you know, carbon credit system and more incentivization of ecological regeneration. There's uh, Althea for, for mesh networks. Uh, so there's a lot of different, you know, real world social impact projects as well. There's, there's a few projects trying to advance uh, the state of cryptography and what you can do in a sort of private Privacy-preserving way using an independent blockchain. So you know, there's a whole gamut of uh, of, of experiments in uh, in different applications. And so you know, probably the ones I'm I'm most uh, interested in are those that are you know really targeting sort of real-world uh, social impact or environmental impact or, or or things like that, or really advancing the state of the art in some kind of technology in a way that's only really possible using a new blockchain. And they can use the Cosmos tools. Uh, to actually launch their own blockchain. And so that's um, that's really gratifying. And Ethan, Cosmos is a proof of stake chain. And if so, you know, how do you validate your contracts on the Cosmos chain? So there are many Cosmos chains and each chain, uh, each chain uses proof of stake. So we have sort of different layers in, in the stack that people can use. We have the baseline consensus engine is called Tendermint. And then we have an application development framework that we call the Cosmos SDK. So most of the Cosmos blockchains are built using the Cosmos SDK. And the Cosmos SDK comes with a built-in proof of stake module that determines who the validators are in the consensus based on uh, a delegated proof of stake scheme. So anyone with tokens can delegate to validate. Well, basically anyone with tokens can sign up to be a validator. You can sign up permissionlessly just with a transaction on the chain. And then anyone with tokens can delegate to the, the candidate validators and, and the top, you know, 100 or 200, or it can, it's different for every blockchain, um, are, uh, you know, the top 200 with amounts delegated are the actual validator set for that chain. And so, you know, there's different validators on all the different chains. There's there's uh, there's a decent amount of overlap between them. And then they actually operate the software for each blockchain and they execute the transactions and, and compute the state and, and return the results. And and the you know, because the because each chain can be implemented using uh, a standard common programming language in the case of the co of chains built with the Cosmos SDK, that would be Go. Um, the Go programming language or Golang, uh, you could build, you know, arbitrary custom logic in there to do kind of whatever you want as an application developer. So it gives a lot of power and flexibility to the developers of the application to actually build them um, however they want and to leverage the sort of existing batteries included proof of stake module 
uh, to figure out who the validators are of their of their chain. Now, Ethan, apologies if I'm uh, hearing the wrong information, but uh, some folks have said, you know, in proof of stake, there's a possible vulnerability of a single entity building up a, a large quantity of token, and then suddenly we're on what might be the equivalent of a Microsoft blockchain or an Amazon blockchain. Is that a, am I listening to the wrong sources? No, I mean, that's certainly, that's always a risk. I mean, you have that kind of risk also in a proof of work system where, you know, some entity can buy up, uh, you know, a significant fraction of mining hardware um, or buy out a bunch of mining companies and, 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 and sort of take over the chain. Uh, you know, there are different arguments on how the network responds in the proof of work context or in the proof of stake context. I think in either case, the network, uh, you generally see it coming. Uh, but in, especially in the proof of stake context, I mean, the, the attacker actually has to literally buy up the coins. And there's only a limited amount of coins usually sort of available on the market. And so, you know, they have to they have to spend a decent chunk of, uh, of change to accumulate that position. And then by taking over it, and once people find out, hey, this is actually, you know, owned by a centralized entity, that might actually affect the price. So they might hurt their own uh, hurt their own investment through this attack. So that said, it, it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely always a, a concern. And, and it's why it's important that, you know, chains build up uh, some level of security through, you know, essentially through the, the value of the of the tokens that are at stake. And that sort of determines their economic security. But, you know, I also try to try to argue that these systems aren't just economic, they're political economic. And uh, so they have the ability to respond politically and, and socially to these economic attacks. And so what it really comes down to is the strength of the culture and, and the community to be able to deal with these kinds of attacks and, and, to, and to secure their system. And if they're taken over by some hostile party, they can, you know, coordinate to fork them out and, and, and so on. So, you know, Cosmos encourages a kind of more active culture of, of governance. And we see that on a lot of the different Cosmos chains, there's very active governance participation uh, from validators, but also from delegators and, and, and users. And so, um, you know, it's a sort of a thriving uh, uh, ecosystem of political economic expression, really. And uh, so that's really exciting to see. But of course, we do have, you know, we do have to keep security in mind and um, keep these attacks in mind and, and, and figure out ways to defend against them. Yeah, it really is a, a great incident of the uh, or explanation of the blockchain trilemma. How do you develop scalability, decentralization and security simultaneously in order to retain the, the principal purpose of the chain? So it seems like you're working well with that at Cosmos. Yeah, that's right. I think we're exploring an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting area of that landscape by, you know, by rather than trying to solve for all of that in a single chain, you make it so that there can be many chains and they can sort of pick where they want to be uh, in terms of in, in terms of their trade-offs. And, you know, there's, there's a variety of development efforts uh, going on to improve the security of proof of stake and to improve the decentralization uh, and, and the scalability of the system. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to experiment and these chains will continue to evolve and um, we'll see. Yeah. Your sovereignty model stresses a lot on the freedom of users, but does it make the blockchain more susceptible to attacks? Insofar as the security is kind of fractured across the different chains, you could say that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, so so compared to a single, you know, single chain like Ethereum, where all the security is focused in a single on a single blockchain, and then all the applications are, are built on top. But by doing that, those individual applications give up uh, a certain other form of security, which is, you know, really security over their over their infrastructure and their future. The base layer can make changes that, you know, that they don't agree with or can become too expensive for them to use and so on. And so with a, as a sovereign chain, you do have to put up your own security. And there is um, there is an inherent cost to that. But uh, I think, you know, contrary to, to, to what people what people thought it would be, 
um, there's a lot more appetite for, you know, for communities to actually do that and, and to define their own boundaries and, and to defend them and, and to try to secure them. Um, and not every application needs the full security of the Ethereum blockchain and to have to pay for it is really overkill. And so, you know, applications can sort of choose to define, uh, you know, where they need to be in the security landscape. And, and by using their own blockchain, they, you know, they don't have to overpay for security. And, and so it might mean that their security is less, but there are, again, there are also other ways to defend. There are political and, and, and sociological ways to defend chains and, and to define the security boundary and so on. So I don't think um, I don't think it's so easy as just saying, you know, oh, one thing is more secure than another, because really security is, um, you know, it's a uh, it, it's a pretty broad landscape of uh, potential uh, requirements or guarantees. And, and, and so Cosmos provides a lot more opportunity for fine tuning and for communities to really define uh, what makes sense and, and and what works for them. And, you know, so so one thing that's worth adding here is, you know, there's one blockchain in the in this ecosystem of blockchains, in this Internet of blockchains, and we call that chain the Cosmos Hub. It's just one of the chains among the many chains in, in Cosmos, uh, but it, it has the highest security of, of all of them. It's sort of been around for the longest. It hosts the Atom token, uh, which is a, you know, a, a, a quite liquid and, and well-distributed token. And there's a new feature launching on the Cosmos Hub early next year in January that's called Interchain Security that allows new blockchains, new blockchain uh, application-specific blockchains to launch using the security of the Cosmos Hub. So they'll inherit that security and be able to uh, leverage the security of the staked atom. And so they won't have to come up with their own security, uh, but they can still have their own token and their own sort of application. It'll just be run by the same validators as the Cosmos Hub. And so ultimately, you know, the, the goal of Cosmos is to really fill in the spectrum of possible ways to provide security. We start with sovereignty as sort of the base model and go bottom up and say, the first and most important thing is that communities can be sovereign over their own computing infrastructure and applications. But then we want to actually fill in the spectrum of possible ways to share security across the interchain. And, you know, there's another protocol called mesh security that allows uh, different chains to sort of share their security with each other and to augment each other. And so I think we'll see you know, a lot more complexity in the space of how these blockchains are, are secured over time. And, and Cosmos and, and IBC really let you explore that. So um, that's, uh, you know, that, that that's something pretty interesting, I think, that we'll see evolve. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. That's a really helpful uh, explanation. Ethan, uh, before we started the recording, we were talking uh, about Terra, which was built on Cosmos, and we were speaking about the incident. Um, so can you explain to everyone what that incident was and how Cosmos was impacted? Yeah, essentially, you know, Terra uh, was its own blockchain. So it was a sovereign blockchain built using the Cosmos technology. It was, I think it might have been the biggest at the time, or certainly one of the biggest. You know, Terra had a stable coin that was called Terra USD. It had a two token model. So there was Luna and Terra. Um, but it wasn't a collateralized stablecoin. So there wasn't actually collateral, uh, you know, backing the issuance of the stablecoin. It used what's sometimes referred to as an al algorithmic stablecoin mechanism or as a seniorage based. Ethan, apologies. I'm just going to interject for our listeners. We did an interview with David Buckthought of ANZ Bank, who introduced the Aussie dollar stablecoin, which is a collateralized coin. And there's a good explanation of the difference between an algorithmic and collateralized coin in that episode. But uh, just a side note for our listeners. Yeah, no problem. So essentially, in these in these seniorage based or algorithmic stable coins, the you know, because there's no collateral, actually backing the system, uh, the, the system is effectively collateralized by the liquidity of another token, right? So the, the stability of the stable coin sort of depends on there being, you know, a very uh, sort of liquid stable market of another token, in this case, Luna, and, and 
unfortunately, that mechanism has a sort of fatal flaw, which is no, you know, which was was well known and, and discussed, which people refer to colloquially as the death spiral, because essentially what happens is the mechanism can get into this uh, into this positive feedback loop where the price of, of Luna keeps dropping. And so there's not enough liquidity to actually back the, the stable coin. And, and so this and, and if the stable coin depegs and becomes, you know, worth less than uh, a dollar and you get you get into this situation like this where there's a lot of selling then uh, it, it may not be possible to actually recover the peg. That can happen if there's, you know, flight out of the system, which is essentially what took place with Terra. They had a, um, you know, an, an unsustainable application called Anchor that, you know, they were subsidizing very high interest rate loans, 20% um, that, that, that people were using sort of irresponsibly um, because it was billed as, you know, secure or, or safe. And um, you know, ultimately, there was, you know, um, I think like $20 billion in, in, in loans or something in, in Terra, and a couple billion, uh, you know, decided to cash out one day and exited the system. And it basically just uh, caused this depegging event. Uh, and the system entered this death spiral and, and wasn't really able to recover. And so, you know, now there's now there's forks of the system and, and, and the community is, you know, trying to recover sort of socially and, and in its own way, which is really uh, kind of amazing to see and, and to witness. But uh, you know, the unraveling of Terra was certainly, um, you know, a, a quite dramatic and, and, and tragic event in the industry. And it, it did have a little bit of contagion, uh, uh, certainly across Cosmos, but because each each blockchain is sovereign, uh, you know, the, the faults are isolated as well. So if one blockchain fails, the other blockchains don't fail at all. They might be exposed in this, you know, insofar as the coins of the failing blockchain were on other chains or vice versa. And, and so they might have to deal with that. But um, most of the most of the impact was was quite contained and was contained to uh, uh, largely to Terra. And I think a lot of, you know, certainly a lot of lessons have been learned about all that. And it was, uh, you know, quite a critical test of, of the Cosmos software and, and the resolve of the community and the sort of philosophy of of sovereignty and interoperability. And so uh, I think the whole ecosystem has become a lot stronger uh, since then. Great. Well, it's uh, I'm pleased to hear Cosmos um, uh, survived the incident and um, the community is regathering its strength. Now, Ethan, you personally personally have a very interesting background in cellular biology, machine learning, blockchain. Um, are, do you foresee a day where you'll be able to bring all of those uh, knowledge pools together into some kind of organized, organoid blockchain computer? Yeah, I, cer I certainly hope so. I certainly try. Uh, you know, we're, we're working on something now, um, what we call collaborative finance, that I think is, is really building on a lot of different threads from my background. And, and so I'm excited to to be seeing that um, pull together really, you know, I'm, I'm really inspired by organisms as sustainable systems and by the closed flows of, of energy that constitute organisms and, and organismal growth and ecosystem growth and, and really, you know, defines what it might mean to do sustainable growth or to grow sustainably. And I think there's a lot we can learn and apply from that to, um, to how we build economies and, and, and how we organize and engineer money. And collaborative finance is, in a sense, an, an attempt uh, to do that. So I write about that a lot. And, you know, I hope one day to write a book sort of synthesizing all these. But in the meantime, um, you know, we're building product and, and, and doing research and, and trying to bring these ideas to market to really help um, uh, help improve finance, make things more sustainable and really help real world businesses. You talk about collaborative finances, the equivalent of an organism. Dive a little bit deeper into that. You've introduced the concept how might collaborative finance be used in a day-to-day -day situation? Uh, how might I use it? How might you use it? Yeah. So, I mean, the way I like to think of that is there's a lot of obsession in, in finance and economics about the quantity of money, right? There's the, the so-called quantity theory of money. Everyone's looking at, you know, the size of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet and, you know, different measures of the money supply, M1, M2, all of this sort of thing. 
Uh, but no one's really talking about the quality of money, right? Uh, what does it mean to have a quality theory of money? Uh, and what do, we, what do we even mean by quality money? Well, we sort of have a definition of what quality money um, looks like. And it's effectively money that flows in closed cycles, in closed loops across firms in society. And the essential idea is that if we are in a closed loop of business relationships, say I owe you $10 and you owe Angus $10 and Angus owes me $10, then we have monetary relations. We have this, we have credit extended to each other, but we don't actually need any, any physical money to clear those debts because we can become aware of the fact that there's a closed loop here and we can just offset $10 from, from each of us, right? And if it's, it's I owe you 10 and, and you owe six and they owe me four, then again, we can net off four from each, right? So these closed loops exist all across um, all across society, and, but no one's aware of them because people are only aware of their sort of bilateral uh, uh, obligations, right? But if you actually map out the graph of invoices in the real world trade credit economy, these loops actually exist e uh, everywhere. And what they allow is what we call liquidity savings, right? Because normally when we have a loop of obligations like this, everyone needs to come up with cash or someone needs to come up with cash to pay to pay things off so that the loop, the, the money can actually flow through the loop, right? But if we simply become aware of the fact that the loop exists, then we can clear it without any money. And so this is sort of the, you know, the essential insight of, of, of collaborative finance or of Ko-Fi. And what it really allows a business to do at the end of the day. Uh, by by pooling invoices for many different business many different businesses, every business can effectively have its invoices reduced to the extent that they're part of closed loops. So as a business, the effect for me might be that I can essentially pay off my accounts payable with my accounts receivable without having to first collect cash. Right. So it sounds a little bit like factoring where I might, you know, uh, factor a, an invoice and accounts receivable um, and some banker will take it off my hands and they'll give me cash at, at some steep discount. And then I have cash to pay. You know, I have some working capital and I can pay off my my own bills. Whereas what this does is, is instead of having someone come in and factor your invoices for a big uh, for a big discount, it actually looks at the structure of the payment system of the existing outstanding invoices and obligations, finds the cycles and allows you uh, to basically reduce your balance sheet, reduce your receivables and, and payables in tandem. Uh, and that, you know, that's actually a very powerful foundation for then building a lot of, of more interesting uh, solutions and clearing uh, services on top, because of course, only a limited amount of credit is going to be in cycles. From our research, it's anywhere from five to even 20% in developed economies, which is, which is, you know, quite substantial. But then you can do a lot of interesting things in terms of the way you introduce liquidity into an economy to optimize uh, for different properties to, you know, clear the most amount of debt for people and so on. So um, by mapping out the payments graph, we can uh, we can provide a lot of value to uh, businesses by saving them liquidity, essentially. Um, so that's the the essence of Kofi. In essence, Ethan, you have solved for cash flow, and I know many a small and medium enterprise that will be blessing you for that uh, rev revolution. So I look forward to learning, seeing more and more of it. Exactly. The goal is is major cash flow savings for uh, for businesses. That's right. Yeah. Tracks in the Finiverse. If you could listen to one song in the Finiverse, what would it be and why? Um, the song that popped into my head was Any Color You Like by Pink Floyd, uh, which is just a beautiful instrumental track from the dark side of the moon that I just um, think really captures their, their sound. And uh, I used to love waking up to that track. So. Um, it's a short song. Maybe I'd get I'd get bored of it if I had it forever, but um, I'll go with that for now.
Ethan Buckman of Cosmos, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for joining us on Waves in the Finiverse. Thanks so much for having me. It's great chatting. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.